Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey sis, welcome back to Girl Goodnight. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into this show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading The Gooford Grapevine, written by Charles W. Chestnut in 1887. Charles Waddell Chestnut, born in 1858, was an African-American author, essayist, political activist, and lawyer. Although he identified as African-American, he was primarily of European descent and was able to pass for a white man. At the age of nine, Chestnut and his family moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina, where he would eventually become the second principal of the Howard School, now known as Fayetteville State University, a historically black university. In 1887, Chestnut passed the bar exam in Ohio and started a court reporting business, which was his primary source of income. From then, he began writing, and two of his books were adapted into silent films in 1926 and 1927 by Oscar Michel, an African-American director and producer. Chestnut also served as a general committee member of the NAACP and contributed short stories and essays to its publication, The Crisis. Charles Chestnut died on November 15, 1932, at the age of 74. In 2008, Chestnut's legacy was memorialized when the United States Postal Service featured him on the 31st stamp in the Black Heritage Stamp series. The Goofer Grapevine was the first work written by an African-American to be published in the esteemed magazine, The Atlantic Monthly. At the time of its publishing, the magazine editors did not know that Chestnut was a black man. The story is set in post-Civil War Patesville, modern-day Fayetteville, North Carolina, where a white northerner comes to investigate a vineyard that he is interested in purchasing. During his visit, he meets a former slave who reveals the vineyard's cursed history. On this episode, the northerner and his wife visit the plantation that they're interested in purchasing. They meet a former slave, Julius McAdoo, who tries to persuade the northerner not to purchase the plantation because it's conjured. Tune in next week for the continuation of the story on part two. Due to the era in which this story was written, it contains language that is racially offensive and is written in the dialect of Southern African Americans in the mid-19th century. Some of the language has been revised or omitted for the purposes of this show. Now, close your eyes. 
take a deep breath and sleep in melanated peace. The Gouford Grapevine Some years ago, my wife was in poor health and our family doctor, in whose skill and honesty I had implicit confidence, advised a change of climate. I shared from an unprofessional standpoint his opinion that the raw winds, the chill rains, and the violent changes of temperature that characterized the winters in the region of the Great Lakes tended to aggravate my wife's difficulty and would undoubtedly shorten her life if she remained exposed to them. The doctor's advice was that we seek not a temporary place of sojourn, but a permanent residence in a warmer and more equable climate. I was engaged at the time in grape culture in Northern Ohio, and as I liked the business and had given it much study, I decided to look for some other locality suitable for carrying it on. I thought of sunny France, of sleepy Spain, of Southern California, but there were objections to them all. It occurred to me that I might find what I wanted in some of our own Southern states. It was a sufficient time after the war for conditions in the South to have become somewhat settled and I was enough of a pioneer to start a new industry if I could not find a place where grape culture had been tried. I wrote to a cousin who had gone into the turpentine business in Central North Carolina. He assured me in response to my inquiries that no better place could be found in the South than the state and neighborhood where he lived. The climate was perfect for health and in conjunction with the soil, ideal for grape culture. Labor was cheap and land could be bought for a mere song. He gave us a cordial invitation to come and visit him while we looked into the matter. We accepted the invitation and after several days of leisurely travel, the last hundred miles of which were up a river on a sidewheel steamer, we reached our destination, a quaint old town, which I shall call Patesville, because for one reason, that is not its name. There was a red brick market house in the public square with a tall tower, which held a four-faced clock that struck the hours and from which there peeled out a curfew at nine o'clock. There were two or three hotels, a courthouse, a jail, stores, offices, and all the appurtenances of a county seat in a commercial emporium for while Patesville numbered only four or 5,000 inhabitants of all shades of complexion, it was one of the principal towns in North Carolina and had a considerable trade in cotton and naval stores. This business activity was not immediately apparent to my unaccustomed eyes. Indeed, when I first saw the town, there brooded over it a calm that seemed almost sabbatic in its restfulness, though I learned later on that underneath its somnolent exterior, the deep currents of life, love and hatred, joy and despair, ambition and avarice, faith and friendship, flowed not less steadily than in livelier latitudes. We found the weather delightful at that season, the end of summer, and were hospitably entertained. Our host was a man of means and evidently regarded our visit as a pleasure, and we were therefore correspondingly at our ease and in a position to act with the coolness of judgment desirable in making so radical a change in our lives. 
My cousin placed a horse and buggy at our disposal and himself acted as our guide until I became somewhat familiar with the country. I found that grape culture, while it had not been carried on to any great extent, was not entirely unknown in the neighborhood. Several planters thereabouts had attempted it on a commercial scale in former years with greater or less success, but like most southern industries, it had felt the blight of war and had fallen into destitute. I went several times to look at a place that I thought might suit me. It was a plantation of considerable extent that had formerly belonged to a wealthy man by the name of McAdoo. The estate had been for years involved in litigation between disputing heirs during which period shiftless cultivation had well nigh exhausted the soil. There had been a vineyard of some extent on the place, but it had not been attended to since the war and had lapsed into utter neglect. The vines, here partly supported by decayed and broken down trellises, there twining themselves among the branches of the slender saplings which had sprung up among them, grew in wild and unpruned luxuriance, and the few scattered grapes they bore were the undisputed prey of the first comer. The site was admirably adapted to grape raising. The soil, with a little attention, could not have been better, and with the native grape, the luscious scarpinon as my main reliance in the beginning, I felt sure that I could introduce and cultivate successfully a number of other varieties. One day I went over with my wife to show her the place. We drove out of the town over a long wooden bridge that spanned a spreading mill pond, past the long whitewashed fence surrounding the county fairground, and struck into a road so sandy that the horse's feet sank to the fetlocks. Our route lay partly uphill and partly down, for we were in the sandhill country. We drove past cultivated farms and then by abandoned fields grown up in scrub oak and shortleaf pine, and once or twice through the solemn aisles of the virgin forest, where the tall pines, well nigh meeting over the narrow road, shut out the sun and wrapped us in cloistral solitude. Once at a crossroads, I was in doubt as to the turn to take, and we sat there waiting 10 minutes. We had already caught some of the native infection of restfulness for some human being to come along who could direct us on our way. At length, a little Negro girl appeared, walking straight as an arrow with a piggin full of water on her head. After a little patient investigation necessary to overcome the child's shyness, we learned what we wished to know and at the end of about five miles from the town, reached our destination. We drove between a pair of decayed gateposts. The gate itself had long since disappeared, and up a straight sandy lane between two lines of rotting rail fence, partly concealed by jimson weeds and briars, to the open space where a dwelling house had once stood, evidently a spacious mansion, if we might judge from the ruined chimneys that were still standing and the brick pillars on which the stills rested. The house itself, we had been informed, had fallen victim to the fortunes of war. We alighted from the buggy, walked about the yard for a while, and then wandered off into the adjoining vineyard. 
Upon Annie's complaining of weariness, I led the way back to the yard where a pine log lying under a spreading elm afforded a shady though somewhat hard seat. One end of the log was already occupied by a vulnerable looking colored man. He held on his knee a hat full of grapes over which he was smacking his lips with great gusto and a pile of grape skins near him indicated that the performance was no new thing. We approached him at an angle from the rear and were close to him before he perceived us. He respectfully rose as we drew near and was moving away when I begged him to keep his seat. Don't let us disturb you, I said. There's plenty of room for us all. He resumed his seat with somewhat of embarrassment. While he had been standing, I had observed that he was a tall man and though slightly bowed by the weight of years, apparently quite vigorous. He was not entirely black and this fact, together with the quality of his hair, which was about six inches long and very bushy except on the top of his head, where he was quite bald, suggested a slight strain of other than Negro blood. There was a shrewdness in his eyes too which was not altogether African, and which, as we afterwards learned from his experience, was indicative of a corresponding shrewdness in his character. He went on eating the grapes, but did not seem to enjoy himself quite so well as he had apparently done before he became aware of our presence. Do you live around here? I asked, anxious to put him at his ease. Yes, sir. I lives over yonder, behind the next sand hill on the Lumberton Plank Road. Do you know anything about the time when this vineyard was cultivated? Lord bless you, sir. I knows all about it. There ain't ne'er man in this settlement will won't tell you what old Julius McAdoo have been raising up on this same here plantation. Is you the northern government was going to buy this old vineyard? I am looking at it, I replied but I don't know that I shall care to buy unless I can be reasonably sure of making something of it. Well, sir, you's a stranger to me and I's a stranger to you and we's both strangers to one another. But if I's in your place, I wouldn't buy this vineyard. Why not? I asked. Well, I don't know whether you believe in conjuring or not. Some of the white folks don't. Everybody said they don't. But the truth of the matter is, this old vineyard is goofed. Is what? I asked, not grasping the meaning of this unfamiliar word. Is goofed, conjured, bewitched? He imparted this information with such solemn earnestness and with such an air of confidential mystery that I felt somewhat interested, while Annie was evidently much impressed and drew closer to me. How do you know it's bewitched? I asked. I wouldn't expect for you to believe me unless you know all the facts, but if you and young mister don't mind listening to an old man run on about a month or two while you're resting, I kind of explained to you how it happened. We assured him that we would be glad to hear how it all happened, and he began to tell us. At first, the current of his memory or imagination seemed somewhat sluggish, but as his embarrassment wore off, his language flowed more freely, and the story acquired perspective and coherence. 
As he became more and more absorbed in the narrative, his eyes assumed a dreamy expression and he seemed to lose sight of his auditors and to be living over again in monologue in his life on the old plantation. Old Master Dougal McAdoo, he began, bought this place long many years before the war. And I remember well when he sought out this dear part of the plantation in Scarpanon. Them vines grow monster fast, and Mass Dougal made thousand gallons of Scarpanon wine every year. Nowadays ain't nothing a black man love next to possum and chicken and watermelon is Scarpanon. They ain't nothing that can stand up inside of Scarpanon for sweetness. Sugar ain't a circumstance to Scarpanon. When the season is now about over and them grapes begin to swivel up with the little wrinkles of old age, when the skin gets soft and brown, then the Scarpanon make you snack your lip and roll your eyes and wish for more. So I reckon it ain't astonishing that the black men love the Scarpanon. There was a side of black men in the neighborhood in the vineyard. There was old Master Bray Boys and old Master Jeans and Master Dougal's own. Then there was a settlement of free black men in the buckras down by the Wilmington Road. And Mass Dougal had the only vineyard in the neighborhood. I reckon it ain't much so nowadays but before the war in slavery times. A black man didn't mind going five or ten miles in the night when there was some good to eat at the other end. So after a while, Mads Dougal began to miss his on, cause he accused the black men of it, but they all nodded to the last. Mads Dougal sought up spring guns and steel traps, and he and the overseer sat up nights once or twice a week, till one night Mads Dougal, he a monstrous and careless man, got his leg shot full of cow peas. But somehow or another, they could never catch none of them black men. I don't know how it happened, but it happened just like I tell you, and them grapes kept going on just the same. But by and by, old Master Dougal fixed up a plan that'll stop it. There was a conjuring woman lived down amongst the free men in the Wilmington Road, and all the darkest from Rockfish to Beaver Creek was scared of her. She could work the most powerfulest kind of goofer, could make people have fits and rheumatize, and even make them dwindle away and die. And they said she went out riding the black men that night. She was a witch size from being a conjure woman. Master Dougal heard about Aunt Peggy's doings and began to flick whether or not he could get her up here to help him keep the black men off them grapevines. One day in the spring of the year, old Miss packed up a basket of chicken and pound cake and a bottle of scarpinone wine, and Master Dougal took it in his buggy and drove over to Aunt Peggy's cabin. He took the basket in and had a long talk with Aunt Peggy. The next day, Aunt Peggy came up to the vineyard. The black man seen her slip around and soon they found out what she was doing there. Master Dougal had hired her to goof of the grapevines. She sauntered around the mongs of them vines and took a leaf from this one and a grape pole from that one and a grape seed from another one. And then a little twig from here, a little pinch of dirt from there and put them all in a big black bottle with a snake's tooth and a speckle hen's gall and some hairs from a black cat's tail and then filled the bottle with scuppernone wine. When she got the goofer all ready and fixed, she took and went out in the woods and buried it under the roof of the oak tree Then came back and told the black men she done goofed the grapevines and air black men would eat them grapes and be sure to die inside 12 months. After that, they left them scoping on alone, and Master Dougal didn't have no occasion to find no more fault. End of season was most gone, when the strange gentleman stopped at the plantation one night to see Master Dougal on some business. And his coachman, seeing them scoping on growing so nice and sweet, he slipped round behind the smokehouse and ate all them scoping on he could. Nobody didn't notice him at the time, but that night, on the way home, 
Them gentlemen's horses ran away and killed a coachman. When he heard the news, Aunt Lucy the cook, she up and said she seen the strange black man eating the scarpinones behind the smokehouse. And then we know the goof had been working. Then one of the black man's children run away from the Carters one day and got in them scarpinones and died the next week. White folks say he died of the fever, but they know it was the goofer, so you'd be sure them darkies didn't have much to do with them scarpinone vines. When the scarpinone season was over for the year, Master Duke was found he had made 1,500 gallons of wine, and one of them heard him laughing with the overseer fit to kill and said them 1,500 gallons of wine was monstrous good interest on the $10 he laid out on the vineyard, so I lies he paid Aunt Peggy $10 for the goofer them grapevines. The goofer didn't work no more till the next summer, when long towards the middle of the season, and one of the field hands died and as that left Mass Duke short of hands he went in off of town to buy another he fetched a new man home with him he was an old black man the color of ginger cake and bald as a horsehapper on top of his head he was part old man though and could do a good day's work are you still up? girl good night Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.